Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. Our conversations with safety experts aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Workplace risks can be managed in many different ways. The key is finding the best techniques to fit your workplace and the risks your workers face. The ASSP ISO 31010 Technical Report provides a guide in applying risk assessment techniques in an effort to gain an understanding of risk, reduce related uncertainty, and obtain risk-based information to help organizations achieve their objectives. Uh, joining me this morning are uh, two of the people who helped lead the uh, effort in developing this uh, technical report. Uh, I'm happy to have them back. They're always great to talk to. Uh, they are uh, Bruce Lyon and Georgie Popov. Bruce is uh, a Vice President of Risk Management Services at Hayes Companies, and Georgie is a professor in the School of Geoscience, Physics, and Safety Sciences at the University of Central Missouri. Guys, great to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. Thank you. As I mentioned at the top, this technical report is its very comprehensive to give safety professionals and organization an idea of how to apply different risk management techniques at their workplaces. And given that it's such a comprehensive document, I thought we could take a look at just a few of the, the specific techniques contained within the report. So I thought we could start with the as low as reasonably practicable technique, uh, or ALARP. I know this is one that safety professionals... Uh, out there might be uh, familiar with. So I thought that might be a good place to start. And uh, Bruce, if you uh, you want to kick us off. Absolutely, Scott. Uh, this, this is a really important concept. And I think uh, it probably hasn't been well understood in, in some areas. And I think the main thing that we have to understand as, as safety and risk professionals is that we know there's no such thing as zero risk or risk-free. Uh, there's always going to be some residual risk, even after we treat a, uh, a risk. And so the concept of ALARP, or as low as reasonably practicable, is the concept of achieving a residual risk level that is considered as low as practicable at the time. So it's an acceptable level of risk to an organization at that time. It, it will change. It, it, it tends to, as organizations get better at treating risk and become more mature in their risk management process, they will lower their acceptable risk level as they get better at controlling and managing risk. So ALARP is that concept of achieving that level that is considered as reasonably practicable. Uh, I like to refer to it as the point of diminishing returns. So, so where the residual risk is considered low and can further be reduced only through excessive expenditures. So in other words, it's kind of a balancing of the benefits and the costs in light of the existing risk level. Fred Manuel He's written about this quite a bit, and he, he says that ALARP is applying available resources to obtain acceptable risk levels that are practicable and economical. And in fact, uh, in the investigation report by the Chemical Safety Board of the Deepwater Horizon, uh, the CSB refers to ALARP, and they refer to it as a realistic risk reduction goal since risk cannot be totally eliminated. So 
ALARP is a, a term that's becoming more familiar to the safety profession, and I think it's something that uh, in the technical report we uh, we include a uh, uh, 50 actual risk management methods and tools in, in there, in the Annex B. And it is, I think, uh, the 44th tool in the uh, technical report. So basically, ALARP should be defined by the organization up front as part of the context and the risk criteria. So, so they should be developing and establishing the risk levels that they consider acceptable as well as the other categories of what is unacceptable, what needs to be a high priority risk, what is a moderate uh, level risk, and then what is considered acceptable. So basically, ALARP is that categorization of, as well as the action levels that will be applied to those levels of risk in the organization. So it's part of the, uh, the risk criteria that is established. And it's going to be different for every organization uh, based on their uh, their overall culture and the work environment, the industry that they operate in, uh, as well as their internal and external stakeholders. So just like all the risk criteria, it's going to be dependent upon the organization, what they are comfortable with, what they are willing to accept as they define their levels uh, and their ALARP concepts. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not going to be the same for every organization. What is acceptable to one organization, say like in the oil and gas industry, may not be acceptable to another operation that's maybe in a different, you know, like healthcare setting. So you have to look at the context, you have to look at the industry and the culture as they define these levels. But the ALARP concept is basically that, defining those risk levels from unacceptable risk where there is immediate action to be taken, that the work stops, there's, it's not allowed to continue. The second level is the high risk levels, which are given the highest priority for risk reduction. The third level, moderate risks, which require further risk reduction at the appropriate time. And then the, the bottom fourth level would be the acceptable or very low risks that should be monitored and reduced if feasible. That's really the concept. And as I mentioned, it's it's established up front and it's used in the risk evaluation phase of risk assessment where, where the risks are judged as to whether they're acceptable or unacceptable or in the middle. And that kind of gives, a, I guess, a little bit of an overview of, of ALARP. Yeah, absolutely. That, that Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I think that paints a, a great picture of how you can look at you know what's acceptable to you and how how you apply that throughout the different risks your workers are facing now moving on to a way you can categorize different types of risks within your organization another technique within the report is risk hierarchy and i wonder if uh, george you could give us uh, an overview of that and how organizations can use that to organize the risks that exist within the workplace well thank you scott uh, that's actually a very uh, interesting question and nice continuation of what we just discussed with the ALARP uh, concept. So a risk hierarchy is actually a comprehensive risk portfolio used to organize the risks by the organization. And they organize them by unit or division or by risk type. And a risk 
profile actually represents the entire portfolio of risk facing uh, an organization. So risk hierarchies are used to aggregate and organize risks according to division type or uh, the risk uh, level. So this is often done in uh, risk management systems where uh, risks can be organized by uh, an organizational unit or the risk type or geography or strategic uh, objective. Uh, risk hierarchies uh, can be used to roll up and drill down actually for uh, analysis and uh, reporting. So once risks have been assessed and their uh, interactions documented, the risk-based information is entered into a comprehensive portfolio for prioritizing uh, risk responses and uh, reporting. And in some organizations uh, with more mature enterprise risk management uh, programs and quantitative uh, capabilities uh, may aggregate individual risks uh, distribution into a bigger picture cumulative uh, loss probability distribution. And they refer that to uh, as risk profile. So once you develop that uh, risk profile, it should provide a complete listing of uh, all the assessed risks by group or type. It will help us communicate risks to decision makers. And uh, that risk profile typically does not allow for priorities of risks uh, unless we added that uh, risk level. So after that, we have to consider uh, how we're going to control the risks. And uh, of course, we're all familiar with the traditional hierarchy of controls that's in many safety books, the engineering and administrative and uh, PPE. Uh, however, uh, ever since uh, NIOSH Prevention Through Design Initiative, which was launched in uh, 2007, the hierarchy of controls was uh, expanded uh, to include elimination and substitution. And then uh, the ASSP Prevention Through Design uh, Standard uh, expanded uh, the hierarchy even further with the addition of avoidance and warnings. So the recently published uh, ASSP technical report uh, expanded the hierarchy of risk treatment, notice that risk treatment, uh, even further than that. Uh, Bruce had mentioned earlier uh, the avoidance uh, concept and you know how we have to reduce the risk to ALARP uh, levels and the reason we have to use uh, hierarchy of risk treatment now instead of uh, hierarchy of controls is because if you avoid the risk or you eliminate it, you don't have to control it. And that goes back to the uh, ISO uh, risk management model where risk treatment is uh, mentioned as the uh, next step. But uh, to summarize that, uh, it loops nicely back to the ALR concept that Bruce uh, previously mentioned. 
Okay, great. Thank you, Georgie. Moving through the the techniques, uh, this one really caught my attention uh, is that of uh, causal mapping. We're talking about identifying the causality and interactions between risks. So I wonder, Bruce, uh, if you could talk to uh, this one and how that applies to risk assessment management in the workplace. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a method that maybe more safety professionals are familiar with. A couple of years ago, Georgie and I wrote an article in Professional Safety on causal factor analysis and the multiple methods that can be used in identifying management system weaknesses and opportunities for improvement in management systems that would help reduce incidents. And causal mapping is is one of the key methods. It's an investigation tool used in instant investigations and analysis. It's it's fairly common. Uh, And it's really just a basic flow chart that maps out the, the events and conditions surrounding an incident that led up to an incident, as well as events after the incident sometimes are, are necessary to be analyzed. And it's, it's a visual method. So in other words, it gives management a really good view of what actually happened and how it, you know, the sequence of the events and secondary events, as well as related conditions that may have influenced the events that led to the incident, as well as any existing controls. And if they functioned correctly or, or if they failed, all in an effort to better understand what led up to the incident. And as I mentioned, it's, it's combined with uh, other methods like barrier analysis. So you can, you can include in the sequence. And when we talk about the diagram, it's basically kind of a flow chart where you, you have uh, the first event that leads to the second event, and there might be two or three events that occur at the same time, and basically have a chain of, of events that lead up to the incident. And we'll talk a little bit about what goes in those events, what how the information is gathered. But basically, any barriers or controls that should have been in place are included to see if there were failures or deviations that that may have led to the incident. And and the bottom line is really the causal mapping process is used to to understand what happened and what do we need to do to fix it or make it work better. It can be used for other things besides incident investigations. It it certainly is um, used for quality and and efficiency and proactively from a safety standpoint to, to understand the, the events that lead up to a particular incident so that those incidents or those events can be modified or, or eliminated that cause deviations. So it's typically performed by a team, uh, a cross-functional team of knowledgeable, experienced uh, members that, that are familiar with the subject. Facts are gathered uh, in terms of uh, the events that, that take place or did take place, uh, and, and sometimes interviewing uh, Involved parties is, is part of the process. Obviously, with investigations, you're interviewing the, the witnesses and those involved. Observations of the process itself uh, to determine the sequence of events that occur. And that's something that can be done proactively before accidents occur, uh, observing a particular task to see how the events that or the, or the individual tasks that take place to 
create a, a particular job and studying those events and how they interact. And as you mentioned, Scott, it really is a, a, an analysis of how events interact and play out in a scenario. So all of this information that's gathered through the, the investigation and, and uh, re- research process, this information is put into kind of flowchart figures, typically like for an event, a rectangle box. You can put as much detail or, or, or keep it simple as you want. And then the conditions that would be attached to the event or somehow involved with, with the sequence of events, those are typically placed in an oval, but it really doesn't matter that the shapes, it's just whatever works for the organization to understand what they represent. And so it can be, it's really a, 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 a nice process to do on a whiteboard, but you can do it on a computer or just draw, draw it out on paper and analyze it and study it to determine what are the potential causal factors of the incident. And I always like to use the plural form of that because typically every incident or a a serious accident, any any, uh, accident that occurs, there's typically multiple causal factors. Uh, we're, We're tempted to just identify the direct causes and the ones that are simple to find, but I think it, it, we need to be digging deeper and investigating as to what the the root level causal factors are buried or embedded in the management system so that when we fix those, that that incident won't occur as, as likely to occur in the organization if that management system has been corrected. Uh, it's not just going to correct that particular event that occurred. It, it will be more encompassing uh, when we get to that level. And that's the purpose of uh, causal mapping. It, it, it's, a, it's a really nice visual representation of how something occurred. And uh, it can be used proactively, as I mentioned, which I think is a really good way to use it in the risk management uh, process. That gives us a really nice transition into this next one. Uh, cause and effect, is, as you just touched on, is such an important part in understanding why incidents occurred in the workplace and how you can better manage those risks. So one particular technique in the report that discusses that goes by a couple of names. It's the Ishikawa fishbone analysis or the cause and effect analysis. So I wonder if you, uh, Bruce, you could speak a little to that, looking at that cause and effect relationship within risk analysis. Absolutely. And the reason it's referred to as the fishbone diagram is that it sort of looks like a fish bone <laughs> diagram. It's, it, it, was, it was developed by an individual named Ishikawa, Ishikawa analysis, and, and also known as cause and effect analysis. I think most people know it as fishbone diagramming or cause and effect analysis. But uh, the bottom line is that it's really a problem-solving tool. It, it, it's used in a lot of industries. Uh, it's been used in a lot of industries, the automotive industry, and uh, among others. A lot of times from a quality standpoint, uh, that's the one thing you'll find with a lot of these methods that we have in, in the technical report. They're not just used specifically for safety and risk management. They can be used for other 
problem solving uh, issues, whether they're quality of production and efficiency. And that's the nice thing about some of these tools. A lot of organizations, their quality people will understand these methods. So when you start using these methods that they use for quality and you involve them in a safety process that they use a tool that they're familiar with, it becomes even more effective. So fishbone diagramming really should be a team-based approach. Uh, and I like to do it on a whiteboard where you have uh, a group uh, of, again, similar to causal mapping, you have a um, cross-functional team of, of individuals that are knowledgeable and experienced in, in the, the subject matter. And the first the first step is identifying what the problem statement is or the scenario that you're trying to uh, solve. Uh, that is the head of the fish. That's the, the, the intended outcome, uh, if you will. It's what we want to achieve. So that has to be clearly defined for the group. And from there, a structure is drawn or, or extended from the, from the problem statement that has branches. And those branches for each branch is a category, a category that typically can be four to six categories. You can have as many as you, you know, as, as you want to include or that are necessary, but typically it's four to six categories of different contributing factors. So when we're talking about a category, uh, that could be people, it could be the process, uh, the materials, the infrastructure, the environment. So these are going to be categories that the focus looks, you know, that's placed on each of these individually. And you start thinking about what, what could go wrong that would lead to this problem statement we want to, you know, avoid or, or solve. And so when we look, for instance, uh, at the, uh, the structure category for people, we may say, let's take a, an example, like a forklift incident. We have forklift operators and we have hopefully spotters that are watching for, uh, you know, traffic, pedestrians and so forth. So there's going, going to be some elements that we need to consider for that risk, for that category of contributing factors. And that might be the operator's experience level, the training and the effectiveness of the training, the, uh, the spotter being involved at, at, you know, and keeping an eye on the surrounding work area. Looking at the equipment, so you have the forklift. Is the, the forklift uh, equipped with all of the warning and, and uh, alarms that are necessary? Does it have the required uh, safety features? So each of, these, each of these are broken down in a branch or a bone, and off of that branch are the, the factors I just mentioned. Anything that has an impact on what could have contributed to this stated problem that we have. Uh, so what you end up having is a structure that has branches for each of these individual contributing factors that you can identify and you can put positive factors or negative factors on those, what, what you have going in favor of reducing that risk or what is a negative factor. And those can be put in different colors, but what you end up with is a very well-defined 
visual representation of what all of the factors that come together that could lead to a problem. And that allows for further analysis. So you can go into specific areas within maybe the infrastructure, you know, elements, there's things identified. Then a, a more pinpointed risk assessment or analysis can take place. Um, so it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty popular method of uh, outlining and defining the specific factors that can come into play in a particular scenario. It helps identify things that maybe weren't thought of and, and you put them in the diagram and they're there for management to see and understand. And I think that's, you know, the first step of getting to the root levels of some of the causes. I, I do like to get as deep as I can in these and not leave it at the employee, you know, uh, is at fault level, which is, tends to happen. Uh, when we talk about, for instance, like employee training, um, you know, that's where we have to go a little deeper and find out what what is the effectiveness of the training? What's the retention of the training? How uh, frequent is it provided? Is, is there testing? So you get into the deeper elements as to what could be going wrong or what could be going better. And so this, this is a method that gives you a, uh, a way to, to better uh, analyze that. Absolutely. I think that that's such a great point about trying to, to get as, as deep as possible to get down to the root cause. Uh, another aspect of this, as we move down, the, the last one on our list here is the impact that risks can have on the business. And Georgie, I know this is something you and I have, have discussed uh, previously on this podcast, and it's such an important part of the risk assessment management process is demonstrating and explaining the impact that risks and can have on the business. So I wonder if you could speak to that and how a business impact analysis can help improve risk management. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, that's a nice transition, actually, and I'm glad that Bruce had mentioned uh, that some of these tools are actually used in uh, quality uh, analysis, and we have to do it together with other experts. So uh, instead of uh, using that silo approach that we don't belong there, uh, as long as we speak the same language or at least similar, we may be invited to discuss uh, some of uh, the other aspects of risk. And uh, that is a nice transition to the next uh, tool you mentioned, which is the business uh, impact uh, analysis. And business impact analysis is a systematic method used to determine and evaluate potential effects of an interruption to critical business operations as a result of a disaster, emergency, or serious incident. And you may ask, shall we add pandemics as well? Well, absolutely. Of course we should. So business impact analysis actually provides an understanding of the critical process that uh, enables an organization to achieve its objectives and it provides information needed to plan for organizations' response to a disruptive 
event, for instance. So specifically, a business impact analysis uh, will provide an understanding of uh, what is critical for uh, the business process, uh, functions, and associated resources, and the key interdependencies, notice that, that exist uh, for an organization. So remember how we talked about that uh, silo approach uh, in previous podcasts and here uh, as well? Well, we have to understand the business perspective and what it means for our uh, organization. So we also have to clearly communicate how disruptive events will affect the capacity and capability of uh, achieving critical business objectives. We also have to have an honest discussion with the decision makers if we have the capacity and the capability needed to manage uh, the impact of a disruption and recover to agreed levels of the uh, operation. And uh, that will go back to the LARP uh, concept and what's acceptable risk for our our organization. And Bruce mentioned uh, that earlier, it was very well discussed. So business impact analysis can be undertaken using uh, different questionnaires and interviews, uh, structured workshops, or a combination of all three of them. And uh, of course, we can use business impact analysis to determine the potential consequences from a disruption to an organization's uh, business. We can discuss the expected recovery uh, timeframe and if that's acceptable or not. We can add the information needed uh, to develop, notice that mitigative uh, uh, strategies because mitigation is uh, after the fact, after the event had occurred. And in a business impact analysis, uh, potential business impact scenarios are are considered during the uh, risk assessment process. And uh, here you can see how uh, we can branch to other uh, tools mentioned in uh, the technical report. Uh, We can use the scenario analysis uh, in some of these cases that could be included in the business impact analysis. We also have to identify and evaluate the impact of uh, business interruptions. And that will give us the basis for investment in mitigation uh, strategies, as well as investment in, notice that, prevention and recovery uh, measures. Uh, In uh, that technical report, uh, it was clearly identified that there is a big difference between prevention and uh, mitigation uh, measures. Business impact analysis can also be used as uh, part of uh, consequence analysis when we have to consider the consequences of uh, operations interruptions and the consequences then can be included in a bolt-eye risk assessment and uh, risk management if the cascading bow ties uh, are used. So as you can see, all these tools uh, could be uh, used in uh, combination. You can start with one, 
you can add another one later. And if you need to analyze some different scenario, you can add even more of uh, the risk assessment and risk management uh, tools that were uh, discussed in the technical report. Yeah, that's excellent, Georgie. I was just going to mention that business impact analysis is being used a lot more recently because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We've had a lot of clients being much more interested in business continuity planning and doing business impact analysis as part of that to to determine, you know, the level of threats to their critical functions. As a matter of fact, yesterday I was on a, a conference call with one of our clients that are a global provider of consulting and auditing services for the food industry. And they're, they've gotten really into it deeply with uh, identifying their level one, level two, level three risks and using business impact analysis to help define that and and on all of the potential scenarios that could create such levels of, you know, that would impact their business. So I think this is a method that is very timely and has a, a lot of uh, application to uh, uh, all types of, of areas for businesses. Well, thank you, Bruce. That's a great example. And, uh, you know, we also provided a simple business impact analysis uh, example or a template, if you will, in uh, the technical report. Absolutely. I think with this new reality we've been living in to think about the the business impact analysis and to your point earlier, Georgie, uh, just integrating, you know, pandemic planning into into your risk management. I think it's just something, you know, everybody's going to have to think about for, from now on in, in, in both of those aspects. Uh, anything uh, either of you'd like to add about the technical report, uh, risk assessment and uh, management as, uh, as we wrap up? I just would like to encourage uh, safety professionals to, uh, to take a look at uh, the the report. I think it has a lot of a lot of information in it, and and it was like we've I think said in the past, it was really designed for the safety professional from a I guess more of a a U.S. or North American viewpoint or perspective, and to bridge some of the gaps that the ISO 31010 uh, previous edition and current edition, uh, there, there's there's some things that that we thought needed to be better explained and and you know created to add a little bit more uh, value to to the user. So I would just uh, encourage folks to take a look and 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 see what is in the the report and uh, and, and and try to start applying some of the concepts and methods that that are available. And Scott, I would add that uh, we expanded number of uh, methods uh, that we included in the technical report were not included in uh, ISO 31010. uh, And we felt it was really important to include some of these other methods because like Bruce mentioned, uh, you know, some of them could be integrated, uh, some of them we could use them uh, together and you can start with uh, something simple, but then uh, as you progress through your career, you can add a little bit more uh, sophisticated uh, tools and learn to 
speak the language of business and quality and, you know, what's used in uh, your organization in the upper uh, level decision-making uh, process. Absolutely. I think, yeah, and that's what so much of this is about, just as, as we've talked about, speaking the language of risk, speaking the language of business, and you know how you can use that to improve uh, safety and health at your organization. So uh, thank you both so much again for coming on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And yeah, definitely uh, uh, encourage folks to take a look at the, the technical report and uh, think about how they can uh, use it to improve safety and health in their workplace. So thank you again. Great. Thank you, Scott. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.